The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. It's Friday the 3rd of July and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Pat Leahy, sitting in today for Hugh Linehan, who's on his annual hot yoga and cool Guinness retreat at Ashford Castle. Today we'll be talking about Sinn Féin's funeral difficulties, the government's difficult first week, and we'll be talking to our London editor, Dennis Staunton, about the latest in Brexit. But first I'm joined by our political reporter, Jennifer Bray. Jennifer, um, I'm reading from the lead story on our online edition at the moment and it says Michelle O'Neill says sorry for hurt but insists she didn't break coronavirus regulations. Why is she apologising for something if she didn't do anything wrong? Indeed, indeed. It seems to me that what she's apologising for is, I suppose, for the, the reaction in a sense, for the for the hurt. Um, and I think, you know, the funeral of uh, uh, the Republican um, Bobby Story, I think, was always going to attract a lot of attention given his past. You know, he became involved in the provisional IRA at a very young age. He spent 20 years in prison and he's also been very prominent in the running of, of Sinn Féin. And also, I think if anybody wants to familiarise themselves with who Bobby Story was and why he's so controversial, I would really highly recommend uh, the piece by our colleague, Jerry Moriarty and kind of takes a really unflinching look at his at his past. Um, so as I say, the funeral was always going to be kind of closely watched. But as kind of is the case with most politics generally, COVID has changed the rules a lot. So the controversy is really that you had some of the most senior figures in Sinn Féin, such as Mary Lou Macdonald and uh, Michelle O'Neill being pictured where it appears that there is no uh, social distancing taking place. So the backdrop, of course, is that funerals for everybody have been quite restricted affairs. And that's brought a lot of pain. That's brought a lot of suffering. And, and these images, I think, give rise to that suspicion that there's one set of rules for Sinn Féin and a different set of rules um, for everybody else. And that's sort of reinforced when you see Michelle O'Neill getting into sort of selfie shots and pictures. Um, and you would think kind of the most obvious thing to do would be to apologise outright, directly and acknowledge kind of the hurt. Um, but it's kind of really only this morning, as you mentioned, that we hear like Mary Lou Macdonald and Michelle O'Neill um, sort of issuing more fulsome apologies. Um, and, you know, I think they'll muddle through this in the short term. But I think the, the question is, what kind of destabilising impact does this have long term? It seems to me that the story is playing slightly differently in the north than it is in the south. What do you think? Yeah, I would I would agree with you there. Um, to a certain degree, to seek you've had the leaders of the DUP, the SDLP, uh, the Unionist Party, and Alliance, and they've said they want Michelle O'Neill to to stand aside, but she is holding firm. So there's a different kind of competing pressures uh, in the north in comparison to the to the south. Um, I do think, like I said, that it is something that they will get through in the short term. But the long term impact is how destabilizing will this be on the uh, on the executive? You know, you have to remember that it's, it took three years to get that deal uh, back, to get the institutions back up and running. And it really seemed actually, despite all the kind of havoc that COVID had wreaked, that Michelle O'Neill and Arlene Foster had kind of strengthened their relationship a little bit. They seemed to be getting on better. And you'd have to wonder kind of what impact this will have between them on an interpersonal, uh, on an interpersonal level. 
Yeah, I mean, just looking at some of the, the northern coverage, it is a lot more partisan and uh, there's certainly Michelle O'Neill's political opponents in the north who, of course, also double up as her partners in government because of the structures of power sharing and so forth. They are lining up to have a go at her, whereas in the south, the criticism from Sinn Féin's political opponents has kind of been muted, uh, muted rather. I mean, it's the, the media really that is pursuing Sinn Féin on the story in the South. Is that fair? Yeah, I think I think that's that's fair to say. Um, I mean, I was at the doorstep yesterday on the plinth with Mary Lou Macdonald and this was the most, you know, the, the, the issue that everybody was was asking about. And it is kind of playing out in the media a, an awful lot. But I do think that people north and south, uh, particularly south, in fact, uh, who maybe have given Sinn Féin their, their first their vote for the first time in the election just gone, might look at this and, and, and maybe might think a little bit more deeply about what a, a vote for Sinn Féin might mean. I mean, you know, I asked Mary Lou if she was Taoiseach, would she still attend the funeral? And she said, of course I would. Why would I not? And, you know, the, the reason why I ask is obviously because the, the history of the provisional IRA and their attitude towards the state and the organs of the state. Yeah, I, I was just reading Stephen Collins' uh, column this morning, uh, which was, of course, very critical of... Um, of Sinn Féin's behaviour and portraying, I suppose, their attitude to the funeral as a sort of a window into the real heart or the real soul of of Sinn Féin. And I think that certainly spoke to and for, you know, the fears and anxieties that many older voters in the South might have uh, about Sinn Féin. But I wonder how much that plays with a younger audience. And it seems to me that... An awful lot of the votes, the new votes that Sinn Féin has got, and we were talking to Kevin Cunningham about this in the podcast on Wednesday, are from a younger generation. And they have certainly less familiarity with the history of the North, the Northern Mm. conflict. They didn't live through it. They will need to read... Uh, Jerry Moriarty's excellent piece about Bobby's story because they will have no idea who he is. Likely most of them will never have heard of him. And I just wonder how this controversy plays with that younger demographic. Yeah, we do have a new new generation of, of voters, younger voters. And, you know, you can see um, when you drill down into Sinn Féin's figures, they have a really strong support base amongst those between 18 uh, and, and 35 or 36. And I do agree that a, a lot of this will probably be fresh reading for, for, for younger voters. Um, but it doesn't mean that they don't care and it doesn't mean that they're not affected by it. Um, you know, it's just not fresh in their memories the way it is, obviously, for, for, for older voters. Yeah, now, to the extent to which that determines whether they stick with Sinn Féin or not, I think that'll actually be borne out by domestic politics in, in the South. Sinn Féin have made it really, really clear what their priorities are for the next couple of years. It's housing, it's healthcare. It's childcare and to a lesser extent, kind of a united Ireland. So, I mean, if things continue as is and, and these crises that we've, we've talked so much about on this podcast aren't, I suppose, aren't addressed, then you can imagine that they'll probably keep their vote with Sinn Féin. And the domestic politics of the South are very, very different from the domestic politics mm-hmm. of the North. Uh, I mean, you, you, you may not like that fact but it is uh, it seems to be an incontrovertible one and therefore these sort of controversies play differently in both jurisdictions but I wonder you know 
are we all being slightly hypocritical in the uh, in talking up this controversy and interrogating Sinn Féin about it when, you know, there was hardly a peep a couple of weeks ago for the funeral of Garda Colm Horkin when many of the photos from that mm. uh, seemed to evidence a similar lack of social distancing as, uh, as was evident at the Bobby Story funeral. I kind of would disagree with that. I think um, actually there's a big difference between how those two funerals um, played out. And uh, if you take, for example, Leo Varadkar, he couldn't attend, uh, as far to the best of my knowledge, because of um, the restrictions on travel. Uh, the president couldn't. I think the, the, he um, marched in his own way in, in Norris and Uchtron. I think the Taoiseach actually went to uh, uh, the Garda HQ um, for, for a minute's silence with, with actual members. So... I think it's actually completely different how the two two funerals have, have played out. And he didn't see um, Simon Coveney or Leo Varadkar getting into selfies with mourners. You know, it's 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 totally different. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we will be joined by our London editor, Dennis Staunton, who um, to talk to talk about uh, Brexit and other matters a little bit later. But I'm going to bring you in, Dennis, um, on, on, on this as well, if I can, because it seems to me there's... Uh, there's a slight smell of Dominic Cummings, do as I say, not as I do, uh, from, uh, from, from this story. And in your estimation, how damaging was that Dominic Cummings, uh, those, those, those events? How damaging were they to the Conservative government, to Boris Johnson? And do you think from your London Erie that there is a possibility that the same sort of effects will take place here with regard to Sinn Féin? I think it was damaging uh, and like Jennifer was saying there's both a short term effect and a long term effect I think you can brazen a lot of things out and uh, Dominic Cummings if you know if you're determined enough you can just decide that you're not going to move and that's quite clearly what he decided to do rather in the same way that uh, Michelle O'Neill is not going to leave and uh, whatever happens the uh, the DUP are not going to bring the uh, executive down because of this but I think that uh, you know where it did have an effect was because it was something that people, uh, a lot of people could understand. They had had these uh, difficulties themselves in terms of what to do about going to funerals or saying goodbye to people who were close to them who were dying. And uh, they felt that this was one law for him who was making the laws and another for other people. And of course... Which you know, it the clearly was. On, yeah, on first, and, 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 yeah. And likewise, in the case of Michelle O'Neill, she was uh, determining the rules in Northern Ireland. And I just wonder if, uh, you know, in a way what it can do, these things are usually most damaging if they reinforce a doubt that the people have about uh, about you or your group. And if there is a sense, and I'm not really so much thinking of the shadow of a gunman idea about Sinn Féin, because I think that's quite clear there's a whole cohort of, and a generation of people who aren't really too put out about that. But I think there is just this sense of, of otherness, uh, maybe, of uh, this idea that somehow it is a party that behaves, at least in some of its, uh, you know, its goings-on, as if the normal rules don't apply. And then also, I think, the fact of just the spectacle of this funeral. Most people in Northern Ireland, but also particularly most people in the rest of Ireland, don't go to funerals where people dress up in white shirts and black ties and form uh, quasi-military formations. And... Uh, 
by. And so, so I think the more is, you know, the more anybody interrogates this, the more anybody interrogates why do you feel this sense of obligation towards the memory of Bobby Story? Who was Bobby Story? Who are you in relationship to Bobby Story? I think all of these things are damaging to Sinn Féin in the short term, but I think in the longer term, just this sense of hypocrisy is something that uh, it doesn't sit well with with any politicians, but particularly with politicians who are trying to present themselves in a way as being uh, the outsiders, tribunes of the people uh, who are confronting a, a, you know, a stale establishment if they're behaving like a rather hypocritical establishment themselves. Okay, we'll come back to you um, shortly, Dennis, with regard to Brexit. But I want to go back to Jen for um, a moment now. Hasn't really been a great first week for the coalition, has it, Jen? Uh, I mean, (laughs) first of all, controversy over uh, the cabinet selection, then controversy over the junior ministerial selection. All of these incidentally taking place in Fianna Fáil rather than uh, elsewhere uh, in uh, in the government. I mean, how significant do you think these controversies have been? Quite, I think quite. And the potential for this to run for, for quite some time. You know, usually when you have a new Taoiseach elected, the, the party rallies around in a very proud way uh, of, of, the, of their uh, Taoiseach. But Michal Martin's just taken a kicking, really, hasn't he? Um, I think the controversy over the senior appointments is, re- is really well documented. Uh, we talked about it uh, when we were last on the podcast. You know, there was shock about Derek Leary and what his local supporters perceived as a snub. Um, and then the because of the lack of coordination between uh, the three party leaders, the lack of a minister in the Western economics. We kind of that played out. And then we had the junior ministries. And I th- that was altogether more fun, depending on what way you look at it. So I think the geographical imbalance probably had to be put right. But what was also interesting was how many people turned down a job or how many people said, no, thank you. Um, and, you know, the other thing, of course, is that you would have expected because these party roles are being carved up between the three, there should have been an acceptance that there's only so many roles that can be doled out. That seems really obvious, but no, no, a lot of very upset TDs during, during the, the week. And actually, there seems to be kind of open warfare in, in Fianna Fáil to a certain degree. We heard Willie O'Dea said that he was bitterly disappointed for the people of Limerick and that the people of the of Limerick were grossly insulted. Um, and then we had the Cork Northwest West Fáil TD, uh, Michael Moynihan, saying that Micheál Martin had insulted him and his community. <laughs> so we had all this kind of playing out. And then we had Jim Let O'Callaghan. us not forget the people of Tipperary, who uh, oh. on, on whose behalf Jackie Cahill has today taken umbrage and, uh, in similar terms. I feel like it would be more newsworthy now if for, for someone to not take umbrage at this stage. It would be like, oh, look, someone who's not annoyed. But, you know, then we had this sort of unusual situation with Joe McHugh and Jim O'Callaghan turning down roles. Now, Jim O'Callaghan is the really, really interesting one here. I mean... You don't have to be Mystic Meg to figure out like what's going on here. So I think in his quote, he talked about wanting to be the voice of Fianna Fáil outside of government to protect the identity of the party. Like he is clearly lining himself up to be the person who saves Fianna Fáil from being entirely subsumed into Fine Gael, the, the you know, the... The saviour of the, the party. Is he now the prince across the water? The prince across the water, yeah, exactly, yeah. And I think that is one to watch. It's so, it's fascinating. Obviously, Michal Martin has a set time. There's a rotating shock. It's all very fascinating. So to a certain degree, maybe he thought, well, look, you know, I'm out, I'm out the door on this date anyway. I'll do what I like. <laughs> and you'll, you know, like it or lump it, basically. But there was another thing, and like, this is just a personal view, but... 
for the first day or two, I found it really fascinating and entertaining. After that, I just thought it became really, really unbecoming and kind of childish and also really not a great look when hundreds of thousands of people are out of work. And I was kind of trying to broach this with a Fianna Fáil TD without totally insulting him. And he said to me that basically he said, yes, you're right, but... The way he put it was that over the last few years, Michal Martin has kind of, as he put it, been whispering in ears and saying, you know, stick with me, stick with this, keep it up. And, who, you know, you might get something. So people felt that they had a role in the bag because they intimated it from conversations they had with him. And they put it to me that that's why they're angry. So in fairness, if I was told, listen, Jen, you're going to get a promotion now at the end of the year, uh, you're taking Pat's job <laughs> and... Uh, uh, How many I, times have I promised you that now, though? I, I mean, know, truly. seriously. And then you get to the end of the year and, you know, that doesn't happen. Maybe then you'd be a bit like, hold on a minute, you told me that I'd be getting a job. So look, that's the other side to it. I feel duty bound to point that out. This is what they're saying internally. But they're they're mad. They're hopping mad. I, I mean, it never ceases to amaze me. Not so much that politicians have a massive interest in jobs for themselves. That is to be expected. But that they think that other people share their interests. I mean, I, I suspect that the vast majority of, I mean, there is clearly quite genuinely felt annoyance in parts of the Fianna Fáil organisation who feel they have been ignored and so forth. But I, I'm not sure the voters, the rest of the voters, the ordinary people who vote, give a hoot about uh, any of this. No, and you know, I I really agree with you. I really don't think the people out there are going, God, that's terrible that Michael Moynihan didn't get a junior ministry. I really don't think so. I could be wrong. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I have sympathy for Michael Moynihan. You know, he laboured in the vineyard as chief whip for uh, for a long time. Um, but um, uh, but I, I, I'm. I would be amazed if uh, outrage on Michael Moynihan's behalf extends beyond a few commons in Cork Northwest. Dennis, you wanted to come in. Yeah, no, I was, well, just really wanted to ask you and Jen. I, I can imagine it's, it's probably true that the broader community may not be all that upset about the destiny of an individual TD. But is it true that people in various communities feel that if they're geographically not represented, so in other words, if a whole swathe of the country, like you know, west of the Shannon or whatever, is not represented in the cabinet, that people who live in those places do feel as if their voice isn't heard in the corridors of power in a way that it might be? Or is that just an old fashioned illusion? No, I think it is true that people do feel that, or at least there is a cohort of people in those areas, some of whom are particularly responsive to that sort of, uh, you know, to that sort of appeal from their representatives. I think the interesting thing that this tells us about, you know, the direction and likely modus operandi of uh, Michal Martin in the Taoiseach's office is that he, he doesn't care about that sort of stuff. He wants to get on with other things. I mean, I, I make the piece, I make the, the point in a uh, piece in uh, Saturday's paper that, you know, Michal Martin has been a TD for 31 years. Uh, he has... Uh, this is, I think, the fifth cabinet um, that he has been in. He knows that you're supposed to have somebody from the West in every cabinet, 
but he chose not to. And he chose not to because he wanted to have Stephen Donnelly as Minister for Health and Darrell O'Brien as Minister for Housing. I think he wants to make progress on those issues above all. And he thought he stood a better chance of doing that with the spokesmen for those areas going straight into the departments in question rather than bringing Dara Kaliri uh, uh, in because he was um, because he was, as you say, geographically represent, uh, representative. So our, our representation, he would be the representation of a particular geographical area. So I, I, I think what it tells us is that Michal Martin is is in a hurry uh, about this stuff and we will be able, therefore, to judge how his premiership is performing within a relatively short period of time. I think if you don't see substantial progress in health and housing by Christmas, it will be a sign that his government and specifically the Fianna Fáil project of political renewal, which is based on a strategy of making progress in those two areas specifically, I think it will tell us that that is uh, that that is in trouble. Um, I wonder, Jen, do you think just going back to Jim O'Callaghan, uh, the Jim O'Callaghan question, do you think there's any... I mean, <laughs> I'm kind of conscious that Michal Martin has only got his feet under the desk and we're already speculating about heaves. But do you you think there's any reality to a challenge from the quarters of the disaffected to Michal Martin in the foreseeable future? Yeah, I do. I do. And I think um, I do. I, I think that the level of anger in Fianna Fáil, the thing that strikes me is that it's not new. This isn't just because of jobs. You know, there's been tense relationships between Michal Martin and his TDs for a long time. A lot of them feel completely detached from him and quite disassociated. And you'll often hear a lot of them give out about the fact that he kind of surrounds himself with a close-knit group of officials and advisors, whereas other party leaders maybe put more stock in direct relationships with their TDs. And it does strike me that that relationship between him and his party members has been disintegrating slowly, but for quite some time. And now that there is a finish date on his premiership, um, it, it sort of speeds things along a little bit. And as with anything, events, dear boy, events. I mean, like this administration is fascinating to watch. But what happens when there is a controversy in one of the parties and the other party has to both stay in government with them, but also disassociate themselves politically at a time when they're going to be attack, attack, attack from Sinn Féin. And I think that's where Jim O'Callaghan seems to be signalling that he'll come in. He will come in and speak for the identity of Fianna Fáil at a time when Michal Martin will be totally constrained and completely bound by his office, you know, and that will be fascinating. And I think you know, I think it'll happen sooner than than that end date of twenty twenty two. Is Jim O'Callaghan a sort of a is he is he a kind of a credible candidate for the organisation which remains largely rurally based to uh, to to rally around in in that sort of an instance? I mean, he 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 doesn't strike me as a man who's had an awful lot of chicken and chips dinners around the uh, the, the Munster Cummins circuit? No, he kind of strikes me as more of a sort of 
Merlot and in Blackrock. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, no, I, I think I, I was actually kind of digging around this during the week because I was in, interested about the exact same question and kind of asking some of his colleagues, you know, what, what's the story here? Like, is, is Jim considered to be kind of a front runner amongst grassroots? Is, is, you know, has he put in the legwork? And they said, look, he might not be, he might not have trudged around the country in the way maybe the Derek Leary has. But there was, as this person said to me, there was a time there for years and years where you couldn't get a private member's bill or anything through without first running a past Jim O'Callaghan. Like his influence in the party goes back further and longer than, you know, his role as a TD. So obviously he's been, you know, um, a legal advisor to the party for a long time and a, a lot of things had to go through him. So he has had extensive communications with people in the party. His relationship with the grassroots to me is kind of... Um, Right now, a bit of a mystery. I would like to kind of delve into that a little bit more. But I think he is considered kind of a, a credible contender. But so some people also talk about him being quite aloof. Um, I haven't actually experienced that. I find him quite personable. But um, it would be interesting to see, like you said, will he do the, the chicken dinner circuit? And, and, and what will, you know, what will his plan be for the next two years? And when he talks about speaking to the identity of Fianna Fáil, what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we'll see. I think all eyes will be on Jim O'Callaghan. Anytime something goes wrong, be it, you know, whatever kind of controversy, the first person journalists are going to go to now is Jim O'Callaghan. <laughs> well, we'll keep a close eye on to see whether he uh, whether he uh, uh, turns up to present the raffle prizes at the <laughs> dinner dance of the Thomas McDonough coming in. Ballyferret or or, uh, or wherever. Listen, Jen, we leave it there um, for now. Thanks for that. And we'll talk to you, no doubt, shortly again uh, about these and other matters. Um, we'll be back shortly to talk about Brexit. You're listening to The Irish Times. Dennis, you're still with us. You had uh, another fascinating London letter uh, today uh, about the state of the Brexit negotiations, and um, I'm going to I'm going to quote uh, from it, uh, if if I may beg your indulgence, um, because it seems to me this almost a summary of the entire negotiations thus far. While the British accuse the Europeans of being too legalistic, the Europeans complain about British amateurishness. Does that sum up the entire Brexit negotiations thus far? Well, it's certainly always been there to some extent, although I think there's always a certain question in the Europeans' minds, is this amateurishness or is it guile? And, uh, you know, because obviously the image of perfidious Albion, uh, you know, the idea they didn't get that name for nothing is uh, is still very present. Uh, but the fact is that they have often, uh, at every stage in the negotiations, appeared to the Europeans at least to be underprepared in terms of detail and to have been shying away from detail. What happened this this week is that uh, a round of talks that uh, was due to go from uh, run on until Friday, it ended uh, on Thursday. And uh, was that a good sign or a bad sign? It was almost neither. It certainly wasn't a good sign in the so far as there wasn't a breakthrough, but it also wasn't a collapse in the talks. What happened, as I understand it, is that if you go back to the middle of June when Boris Johnson had a video conference call with the presidents of the three European institutions, uh, what happened there was that he said, look, uh, I want a deal and I want to have this deal and try to get it done as quickly as possible. But we have three real red lines that there's just no possibility of my being able to cross. And one is that there can't be a role for the European Court of Justice in Britain after the end of the transition period. Britain can't be obliged to follow EU law. 
And thirdly, there must be a, a new deal on fisheries that makes it clear that things have changed after Brexit. Uh, now, there had been other areas of uh, disagreement, but he didn't mention those. And so the Europeans uh, interpreted what he said as being, these are indeed the red lines. So afterwards, the Europeans, uh, Barnier said to the British, look, um, we will try to find, we're willing to try to find some way of working around the demands that we have that accommodate your red lines. And... Uh, and in the statement that the uh, that they made, the leaders made after this conference call, they said, you know, they wanted uh, the negotiating uh, partners to engage with the principles of each other's positions uh, over the next few weeks. And so they scheduled these uh, rounds of negotiations every week through uh, July and into August. And so, uh, so the Europeans basically said, we're willing to compromise, uh, but we need next a sign from you. The, the British that you're willing to compromise, and so uh, in advance of this week, uh, this week's talks, they were essentially the European side believed that it was necessary uh, this week for David Frost to bring some kind of compromise or concession to show that they were willing to move, and that wasn't really forthcoming. No. So that didn't happen. By the time uh, the uh, talks broke up on Thursday, he hadn't produced this concession. There's some whispers around uh, Westminster that, in fact, uh, you know, he had one prepared but didn't choose to play it. I don't know if that's the case. Uh, what I understand is that by the time those talks ended on Thursday, he was left in no doubt but that actually, if you want to make progress soon, to make any real progress in July, you're going to have to come up with something. And you're going to have to show that uh, just as we're prepared to uh, leave some of our legalistic red lines to accommodate you, that you have to be prepared to move a bit uh, to find this, um, you know, this landing place. Is it possible, do you think, to reconcile those British red lines? And while two of them seemed to me to be pretty stark. The one about fisheries, something has changed on fisheries, looks a little bit fuzzier because, after all, no matter what the deal on fisheries, if there is to be one that is agreed, uh, something will, will definitely have changed. But I wonder, is it, is it possible, do you think, to reconcile those red lines with the the one that seems to me is the overriding red line of the EU, which is that the level playing field be preserved. Yeah, so I, just to, to deal with fisheries first, the uh, part of the, 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 the issue with fisheries is that the EU's demand is on the face of it unreasonable because basically what they're saying is that they should, that the Europeans ought to have almost the same access to uh, British fishing waters after the transition period as they do now and that uh, this uh, should really only be renegotiated every few years. What the British are saying is, look, uh, we should uh, arrange this negotiated every year on the basis of how many fish there are in the sea, effectively, the sort of the science and various other kind of arrangements, but rather as in the way that Norway does it. So I think, you know, fisheries, as you know, is very highly charged politically, even though it's not significant economically in most countries, but for a number of countries, including Britain, it has a big sort of political heft. So it's a delicate and difficult thing, but I think on both sides they think they could see where you would find a compromise. It's, it's, it's always subject to a deal though isn't it it's always you know it is always possible to get a deal on fisheries 
Yeah, I think it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bit like if you're talking about money, you can always find a deal. You can always do a deal once you're, if it's just about money. And mm-hmm. the same way, I think on something like this, you probably can find a way through it. And I think both sides think that that's the case, and they don't know what the solution is, but they think it's possible. On the level playing field, the level playing field are these binding commitments on fair competition uh, that uh, the European Union wants Britain to make, and they want uh, uh, they want them on a number of different areas. One is things like employment and consumer rights, another is environmental rights. And here, I think you'll probably be all right insofar as what Britain uh, is saying is we have extremely high standards in these areas, in some cases higher than the rest of the European Union, and uh, we're going to, you know, we're not going to renege on that in any case. And uh, then it's a question of how do you make that binding? And But the actual principle of non-regression is not something that Britain has a huge problem with, where those are areas are concerned. That One it three, wouldn't lower its environmental or labour law standards or whatever. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't start sending the children down the mines and up the chimneys and yeah, exactly. And then on, the, the, but the one that's really difficult is state aid rules. And so this is uh, how the state subsidises uh, industry or businesses in all kinds of ways. That can mean that they give them money, but it can also mean, say, lower electricity prices. It can do all kinds of things. Which and suddenly, if the state has, decides to spend a lot of money on these things, it can give a huge advantage to a manufacturer, for example, in your country rather than another one. And the European Union has this system of state aid rules and essentially what they have been saying to Britain is you should continue to follow our state aid rules or at least there should be a system which is based on our state aid rules and what that would imply would be not only that the UK would continue to follow the current ones but that they would also follow them as they changed and now for Britain for a number of reasons this is unacceptable one is that uh, what's the point of leaving the European Union if you have to keep following rules that they're making that you have no say over and secondly uh, this government of Boris Johnson's wants to spend a lot of money actually on promoting business part of the deal is is all of that but isn't this precisely what governments all over Europe are about to start doing is to dishing out state aids to lots and lots of businesses to help them survive the, con- uh, the, the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, yeah, they have been doing that. But, uh, but, uh, but what the European Union would say is, OK, we've chosen to kind of suspend our rules on this or to, uh, you know, to, to loosen them. But the fact is there are rules. And, uh, you know, and, so that, and these are rules that we all have to abide by, which means that you know, a Dutch government can't uh, you know, promote its own. Uh, firms to the disadvantage of an Irish one. Now they don't always work perfectly in practice but still nonetheless there is a framework there and they are, there are rules that they have to follow. So what the Europeans really are saying is now, look is there some way that we can find a way where we accept that the European Court of Justice uh, doesn't have to uh, adjudicate what you do but has to obviously adjudicate what we do in, in the European Union. And that maybe, you know, you don't have to dynamically follow our laws. But in fact, maybe we can have this sort of parallel system where you have your rules with your own regulator and we have our rules with our regulator, but we agree on certain parameters within which these operate. So there's a kind of a framework beyond which you don't go. And, uh, you know, uh, you know but, this, but this framework has to be binding and there has to be some kind of an arbitration system, you know, which can work quickly and effectively to make sure that uh, neither side goes off the rails. And 
the difficulty that they have, apart from the fact that the British haven't said yes, is that uh, Britain hasn't decided what its own state aid regime is going to be on the 1st of January. Nobody knows what the state aid rules in Britain will be. And of course, if. And when will we know that? Whenever they decide to produce them. But they haven't. Great. <laughs> well, that's, that is sort of more or less what the Europeans say. They say, like, you know, we're, we obviously can't, uh, you know, do a deal on the basis of something that we don't know anything about. And so, uh, so, I, so I think that what they were hoping for was that uh, Britain would come up with something and say, right this is the direction that we'll go in, this is how we'll uh, go about it. And then the other thing is that, you know, if Britain wants to do this deal quite soon, and it does because for lots of reasons it's better to do the deal early uh, because, uh, you know, first of all it gets it out of the way, it creates a bit of stability, it allows uh, the British government to make the necessary preparations. It also sends a signal to various British businesses, don't worry, you can stay here, this is the framework you'd be operating under. Uh, whereas obviously the later it goes, some of these companies will decide, it's October, we need to continue operating in Europe, we're getting out of here. And so, so the value of the deal diminishes as the time goes on. Also, the longer it goes, if the British conduct of the negotiations over recent years has been anything to go by, uh, the the more likely, you know, the, as, as deadline for agreement approaches and there is no agreement, the more likely the British government is to roll over on its red lines. Is that fair? Possibly, but you just don't know. I mean, I, I, think, I think the thing is, I, I do think that although... Boris Johnson has a lot of room for manoeuvre. And I mean, despite everything that has gone wrong for him over the coronavirus crisis. He's got a whopper of a majority. He can do what he wants. He has, exactly. He's got a, an 80-seat majority and there's no election until 2024. And that gives uh, you know, a government a lot of room for manoeuvre. And also, it's, his parliamentary party is fully bought into Brexit. So he can, in a way, you know, do what he wants, uh, you know, in terms of the deal. But I do think it has to be recognisably Brexit. And I think that's also because he and the people in his government, the vote leave people in his government, they really believe in it. They actually believe that, you know, this is an opportunity and you have, and Britain has to be free to, to take advantage of not being subject to these European rules that it might ne not necessarily like. And so, so there has to be some uh, element of divergence. In a way, divergence is the, is the point of Brexit. And mm -hmm. so there has to be something of that. Uh, you know, but at the same time, I think he can afford to, uh, you know, to, to compromise. But I think he's probably actually, in a funny way, he probably will get a better deal sooner than he will later, because of, in a way, what you were saying, that actually as the, the noose tightens and as the clock ticks further towards uh, you know, the end of December, the pressure is greater, you know, is much heavier, more heavily on him. And I think that there's another factor which has come into the whole thing, which adds to the pressure, which is Donald Trump's fortunes. And the idea that uh, Donald Trump uh, looks right now as if he might not win the election and that uh, they'll be dealing with Joe Biden. And Joe Biden is a multilateralist. He and his team believe absolutely in the value of the European Union. They think Brexit was uh, an expression of right-wing populism, just like the election of Donald Trump. And they're also particularly 
uh, Biden and a lot of his circle, as Suzanne Lynch has reported in our paper, they're very, very alert to any danger to the peace process in Northern Ireland. And they're sure, going to he's be practically watching. one of our own, isn't he? He is actually, in many ways. I mean, he's got about four Irish grandparents, which is about as many as you can have, as far as I know. But anyway, but he... Um, <laughs> it's enough is, to be going uh, on with, anyway. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and so, anyway, but it, so the point is that they'll be monitoring what they're doing on the uh, on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, the pressure is, uh, you know, the pressure is going to be on uh, where uh, you're, you're to do a deal and it's better to have the deal done before the election happens in the US. So again, the other problem the Europeans will talk about is that you know, uh, that, you, know you, you have to have some time, build in some time to codify this, to actually put it into a legal text because just having the notion and jotting it down is not really enough. You really have to... So in other words, if they want to really make progress soon, they need to make a move very soon. I thought the tone of your piece today was a bit more optimistic than uh, might have been the case a bit earlier in the year. I think what's happened is that at the beginning of the year, there was quite a lot of talk about, first of all, what you know, what the British wanted wasn't so far away from a no-deal Brexit, that, the, uh, that you know, in a way the difference between the two was small enough that they could, you know, they'd prefer to have a deal, but they could live with not having a deal, it wouldn't be so, so big. Then what happened was, first of all, that you had the coronavirus, and that uh, initially some of them thought, oh, this is actually fine, because the disruption of the coronavirus will be so great, nobody will notice the extra disruption uh, that comes with a no-deal Brexit. Uh, that nobody is talking about now because the cost of the coronavirus is so enormous that adding to that the cost of dealing with a, with a no-free trade agreement, you know, it's just all too much. But I think then the other thing uh, is that, uh, that what Britain is looking for is... It, it's emerged that it's actually a bit more than what they were saying, which was they were saying we just really want a totally off-the-shelf arrangement. But actually they want more. They, they want, for example, their professional uh, qualifications to be recognised all the way across Europe. They want to, the right to certify products that come from countries outside the European Union and certify those as being effectively British products or, uh, and so that you can put those into some British pro- manufactured product and that may up, uh, you know, the enough in terms of rules of origin for this to count as a British product. So you get these components from elsewhere, you put them into your British product, and then you can uh, have free access to the European single market. So they're actually looking for a bit more than they appear to be initially. And so I so think they the, need a deal. So, so I think that yeah, and all of the signs really, uh, you know, are that they need one and they want one. And so, for example, the other real, really big sign was that uh, you know they had initially said if we don't see much progress by the end of June, then we're just going to give up and uh, not bother talking anymore and just prepare for the No Deal Brexit. Well, there's no talk of that anymore, obviously. And uh, June has come and gone. And so, uh, and even when they talk about saying we'd really like to do this by by the end of the summer, nobody's saying that's a deadline. There are no okay. deadlines well, except the ones that the Europeans have imposed. It sounds like a busy summer uh, uh, ahead for you, Dennis. On the uh, on, on on the other hand, um, I read in the British media at the moment that the uh, the pubs in London are to open at six a.m. tomorrow morning. So they are had, indeed. Uh, yeah, we better we better now. leave you go and prepare for that uh, <laughs> for, the, for for that great event. Um, thanks as ever, uh, our London editor Dennis Staunton. That's all for today. Thanks to you for listening and to our producer, Declan Conlon, who put the whole shooting gallery together. We'll talk to you next week.